What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello and happy Monday, my friends. This is Amy Lee San Juan, and I'd like to welcome you back to another episode of Cisco Champion Radio, where we discuss topics across the Cisco portfolio to give you the insights you want and hopefully need. Today, we are talking about the sport, or perhaps the art, of threat hunting as a security practice, how to do it, how it can help you uncover threats in your network, and weaknesses in your environment. To help us guide the conversation, we have champions Jonathan, Kenny, and Mark with us today. And it is our pleasure to welcome co-host of Beers with Tallow's Matt Olney as our resident Cisco subject matter expert. Matt, on that note, welcome to Cisco Champion Radio. When you are not podcasting, what do you do at Cisco? Uh, I am the Director of Threat Intelligence and Interdiction um, as part of the Talos team. Um, Maintain the national security and law enforcement relationships for threat intelligence. uh, Provide intelligence support to the incident response teams that support our customers. um, And uh, do telemetry uh, threat hunting to find customers who may need uh, a little extra help. Uh, based on what we see in the telemetry. Nice. You do a lot. I, I do absolutely nothing. That's all my team. Uh, oh, that's, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> I, it's, 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 all, all glory. it's all glory to them, for sure. <laughs> awesome. All right. Now let's get to know our Cisco champion host, Jonathan. Help us understand who you are. Morning, Amy How are you doing? Good so, morning. Um, uh, yep. My name is Jonathan Mahadi. I'm part of uh, BHP, so I work in the mining sector. I'm one of the network principals uh, at BHP, and we work on governance and technical stewardship and also support and project delivery. So I'll get a bit of a mixed bag there. Very cool. Kenny, you're up next. What do you do? Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Kenny Paula. I work as a network security engineer for East End Manufacturing. I also work as um, IT instructor, teaching cybersecurity classes, and I'm part of the Cisco Networking Academy portfolio in the University of Michigan and also a local college here in Reading, Pennsylvania. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. All right, Mark, last but definitely not least, tell us about yourself. Hi, I'm Mark Siebring. I'm a network consultant, uh, architect, whatever you want to call it, in Defo team in the Netherlands, and I work for clients helping to get more out of their IT environment. And in my spare time, if I have any, I like to read about security, play with it, and um, do some automation stuff as well that you can find on uh, GitHub as NetCICD. And my Twitter handle is net, uh, NetCICD. All right. Well, Matt, let's get into it. Uh, Before the champs kick off the conversation, is there any background uh, or context you'd like to share with us today? Um, So, I mean, we're we're talking about threat hunting today, right? So, um, 
it's one of those it's one of those terms like a lot of recent terms that that may mean different things to different people um but but when we talk about threat hunting um we're looking at um kind of a presumption of breach approach where we're looking in uh primarily telemetry and and logs and, and other other system monitoring uh tools to see if we can see something that indicates uh, that it's compromised that can lead to an investigation. So rather than than having an alert trigger and say we've caught or we, we, we see this lateral movement, really digging into the telemetry, looking for um, actors aggressively that way, um, rather than waiting for them to trip something that we've set up. And so that when we talk about threat hunting, that's kind of what we're thinking about on our side. So you're not Ghostbusters? I mean, you, you, like, so there certainly is a service um, uh, with Cisco, um, uh, with, with Talos's IR team, where they come in and do this on site with, with the site's defenders uh, and kind of take them through the thought process and bring in current TTPs and look at um, what they can learn from that exercise. Even if you don't uh, find an adversary, you frequently learn a lot about your environment as you do these kind of processes. Okay, um, that sounds really um, exciting, math and all that, but how, how do you look for something that you don't know if it's a six or not in your network? There's a couple of different approaches. Uh, like, like the easiest one, um, and I think one that a lot of people probably kind of conduct reflexively, is where you're depending on IOCs that you see from, from uh, external research. So someone publishes a blog about a new threat, and they say it uses these domain names or it uses these IP addresses for C2, um, uses these techniques to move laterally. Then you can go into your systems and go, have I seen these? Um, is it in my logs? Uh, is there an indication that, that something has slipped through? And, uh, and, and, that, and uh, you find things that way. With, you know, once you get past that and you're into sort of like the intelligence cycle, um, then you're looking at um, how do I leverage the information I have uh, and kind of construct almost like a, a systemic honeypot for my environment. How do I learn what I can see in my environment, what's normal, what's abnormal, um, what an actor might do and how that might look in my environment. Uh, so if, if you have a if you have an adversary, who's moving laterally, losing, like, say, PS exec, for example. Um, you might actually see, if you don't use PS exec internally, you might see instances of that show up. Um, you might see, like, these server components being installed as they construct the connections. And that kind of setup um, can be indicative of someone moving laterally, but you have to do that within the context of your network, which is why, as I said earlier, like, part of the process of threat hunting is learning about how your system behaves learning what your visibility is into that system and then starting to kind of either uh, fill in the gaps uh, over time where you increase your visibility or learning more about how you can leverage the visibility you do have to find people who are acting maliciously in your network. But that's kind of hard. I mean, it's very easy to create a giant haystack trying to find a single needle. How do you figure out how big the haystack needs to be or how you can get more needles out? I mean, first off, let me acknowledge that one, you're not wrong. It is hard, right? So um, there isn't a, a a plethora of information that's available to defenders. What I, I would advise someone who is starting this out is is you, you pick pick the thing that you are most comfortable with. 
um, pick the the data set inside your enterprise um, or inside of your network that you are most comfortable with. So so that you're not having to like a lot of times when we when we encounter new data sets, a lot of what we have to do is learn what the nuances of the data itself is, what the biases are, um, what the gaps are, what it's really telling you, because we have a tendency um, as analysts to project on top of data what we want to see. So we have to be very careful that we understand what the data is actually telling us and not seeing what we want to. So pick a data set that you're very familiar with and then start start working through it and trying to find ways that you can kind of say operationalize it in terms of this is normal. Um, you know, this is borderline behavior. This is out of bounds behavior. Um, I know this data set, if I were an attacker and I kind of conducted you know, Mimikatz or PS Exec or some of the kind of common um, uh, power tools sort of kind of lateral movements. What would that look like inside of this data set? Um, is there a way for me to get information into this data set that would show up when they do these things? Um, do I have the capacity to look at registry keys? Um, can I look at them being set or mutexes on boxes? There's so many different ways in, uh, to kind of catch it. Um, I would say threat hunting is very much kind of a, a mature level um, activity. You kind of have to have all your other eggs in a row before you start on this. Um, but yeah, that's 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 kind of how I would start with it, is, is you start with what you know, and then as you go through it, if you're doing it right, you'll start asking questions that you can't answer, and you either can't answer those because you don't have that data available to you or you don't understand what you're looking at. So one is a technology fix and one is an educational fix. And both of those are real good investments in terms of um, kind of accelerating your ability to track down people in your network. So Matt, just expand on that a little bit. Um, you know, when we talk about, like, th- like threat hunting is very complex. It sounds very complex. So well, what, what, th- what things are people not doing in their environments and what, kind of, what are kind of the biggest pitfalls you see uh, when someone comes to you uh, with a potential threat? It's all about, it's all about visibility, right? So... You, you, if you're not instrumenting your network aggressively, then you're not going to be able to answer questions that you have about, about what's happening there. So it's a very common finding in incident response, emergency responses, is that there was insufficient logging. Um, either the logs weren't being created or they weren't being kept long enough or whatever it was. Um, for questions that were being asked to be answered. And so part of the post, post-incident post kind of operations is filling in those gaps, um, investing in, in that visibility. Um, that's the key, right? It's, you're, you're not like um, walking from computer to computer, um, looking in each computer's registry to see if it has a, you know, a certain value set or a key that exists or whatever. You're, you're looking for systemic operations that you can do um, so you're asking all computers or you are, you know, monitoring all DNS traffic, um, so that you can put in, you know, playbooks, um, that you can run consistently over time, always looking for, for different things, different activities inside of your network. So it's, it is, it is, it is definitely a challenge. And I think the biggest challenge is what you can see. So, and, and, and the benefit of doing this pre-incident is that if you go through the process of, of threat hunting and you're like, man, I just can't answer it. I want to know this thing and I can't answer it. I don't know what people are looking up in DNS because I'm not logging DNS queries. I have no way of knowing what's going on. When you go to an incident, if you have fixed that problem, you will have saved yourself a huge amount of problems. So it's almost akin to like 
kind of a, a very deep technical tabletop exercise where part of the value outcome, like like the, the least likely scenario is that you uncover a malicious actor when you start. That's the least likely scenario. The most likely scenario is you learn, oh, I don't know anything about our DNS architecture. I don't know how it works. Um, and I don't even know if we keep DNS logs. Um, how do we get this question answered? Um, and so it's it's part of the maturation process of learning about your environment. So, Matt, is there a source of shared knowledge that people can use? Like, okay, so how long do you keep the logs? Is it, is it two days? Is it six months? Is it a year? Uh, but uh, also, you talk about what you see in the network, but when I understand you correctly, uh, the PS uh, is something you would see on the server, so it's not only the network you're looking at. Where 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 do you where do you start looking? Because I can imagine that Talos has a lot of information, but you don't want to share everything with everybody. Well, I mean, you you again. Um, so when I say network, I mean in, in that space that you control. Uh, I should I should I don't know what what your environment perhaps is what I should say. So it may be on the network, it may be on the endpoint, uh, maybe on the servers, maybe on the firewalls. You know, maybe in your DNS servers, maybe anywhere. Again, so it's it's not just the network; it's all those individual pieces. And as to where to start, um, again, you kind of want to build this into a cyclical process where you gain intelligence or insight in some way. So um, you gain it through you have an incident in your environment, and you go through and you learn kind of what happened, and you read the the IR report, and you you know research the actor. Um, you figure out how they move typically, understand what they're wanting to do. And then you start trying to figure out how would I observe this in, in my environment. Um, and so one of, the, one of the keys to threat hunting is it's very much about, you know, the challenge is a lot of, a lot of security work is like, like technical challenges. The challenge in technical environment or in, in threat hunting is do you understand what is happening in your network uh, and what, or in your environment? And I think what you'll find very quickly is you do not um, have the level of understanding that you would like to have. Um, and so there is absolutely there is a place where you can't gain any more knowledge. But most most enterprises are well short of that that position. So you you start working through. Okay, we had we we read this research report from this blog that was published. And we want to be able to hunt for it. These pieces we can. We can. We have firewall logs, so we can tell did people connect to these C2s. Um, but we can't check to see if they looked up this DNS information. Um, so we should kind of go back and look at how do we find that out. And so the piece, is, the first piece is don't be consumed by the largeness of it. Like if you if you you don't want to like stand there on the border of your environment and look at the huge forest laid out in front of you. And, and like, how am I going to find, you know, someone in this forest? You start breaking it up into small pieces and understand that threat hunting is not a, a success only if you find malicious actors. It's a success if, if at the end of that threat hunting process, you understand your network better. You have more visibility into your network. You understand the actors that you're pursuing better. Like, those are kind of the outcomes of it. And so it's part, it's like a, it's like half of a emergency response. Um, you know, without knowing what the emergency is. And so, you know, you can, if you, if you, if you budget in a few hours a week for it, you know, pick the piece of research that you saw that week that you were most fascinated with 
and start digging into like how would I see this locally. Sometimes that means, and this is true for us as well, sometimes it means you have to replicate what happened in that environment and find the tools the adversaries used. Um, you know, puts you know a real aggressive sysmon configuration on a box and run it uh, against the box and see what all the instrumentation in Microsoft shows you. And you're like, okay, if I wanted to catch this, I would have to have the following sysmon configuration. Is this viable on my desktops? Um, is this perhaps viable on my critical desktops? Um, are there parts of my enterprise where I'm so concerned about this that I might want to run a sysmon config this aggressive? So that that's, I mean, that's it's all part of that kind of, of, of process. But I, the key of it really is the goal, like, like it's nice if you, you know, find someone running around in your network. But the goal of the exercise really is to better understand the environment that you're in, better understand the tooling available to you, help guide the CISO in terms of like investment over the next year in terms of what visibility tools we need going forward um, and, and kind of conclude with that. But it does help if you catch somebody because if they need budget, then there's nothing <laughs> like <laughs> Well, the, the, given the fact that they say... Um, it's not if you have been breached, it's just a matter of you to find out when. Uh, how common is it then to not find someone? Because apparently everybody is breached. But apparently what you say is it's very uncommon to find one. So are they that good or are you that bad? Well, it's very uncommon when you start, right? And, and, and you know, I don't know that I would say most, most environments are currently breached. Um, there are certainly environments that we run into where we find one bad guy and then are like, we think there are more because either it was very low hanging fruit that got them in or the level of sophistication was very low. And we just think given the targeting that that additional work is necessary. But, you know, at the, like I said, what I said was at the beginning, um, don't expect just to go in and find someone because a lot of what you're going to find, like any kind of long tail analysis that you do where you're looking for the unusual in the data, because if it's common and, and usual, you're, you're presuming that that's normal network behavior. If you get out into the unusual of your network, you're going to find a lot of weird stuff that your environment just does. Like it runs a whole bunch of jobs at midnight and that's why the load spikes and it has a whole bunch of output and you do backups at a certain time and you have a partner that requires certain reports at 4 a.m. every day and so these weird boxes spin up that you've never heard of because they've just done their job for 20 years that you're gonna you're gonna find bunches of stuff like that um, and you're gonna find people being stupid on your network you know bit torrenting you know stuff and cop you know just doing weird stupid human things that aren't what you're really concerned about they shouldn't be doing it on your environment but you're going to process through all of that kind of stuff and then you're going to get down to really kind of honing in okay we kind of got the visibility we need we we understand the 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 those things inside of our environment that are odd and weird and we we nailed both of those down now we can really start to invest more time in pursuing oddities in our network because now the oddities are more likely to be something that we're concerned about. So, um, you know, now talking about the traffic and, and honeypotting and, and understanding the behavior of your network and all of that, how often do you run into false positive and, and how do you guys handle that? How is that being handled? 
I think like most, like I would argue that most of your things are false positives unless you've got an indicator that really, that really locks things down. Um, so as you look through, like, it, it kind of depends on what you're doing. If you're doing, like, if you're looking through your, uh, your environment and you're like, um, this is weird, you know, is this bad? Like those, is it bad questions generally turn out to be, no, it's not bad. There's just something you don't know about your network. Um, where you sort of get into borderline things is where you get into admin tools that are sometimes, uh, misused by adversaries. So like AD tools is a common example or PowerShell, um, a little more broadly, uh, where it is not uncommon for PowerShell to run on computers in an enterprise environment. It's not uncommon for, um, AD tools to be run. And depending on, you know, the environment I've seen like environments run that are very heavily use AD tools in some very creative ways. But it is true that actors can use AD tools to dump Active Directory data that is unique to them or, or that is important to them. And we see that as a common piece of a playbook of adversaries. The key is, do you have the visibility to see when a computer runs AD tools? And do you have the visibility to see what the command line parameters for that AD tools is? And so I don't, I, I, I you know, I don't think false positives are indicative of anything other than you leaning forward um, and being aggressive. I would not like if you're blocking based on things, then we have a different conversation. But if you're if you're bubbling up things to look at and it's just, you know, John being weird in accounting. Well, John was being weird in accounting. And, you know, now now we know what's going on. Um, but, you know, if you've blocked and it was something you didn't understand, it turns out to be, you know, a bank's 3 a.m. reporting to key partners, well, then, yeah, that's a that's a, that's a a pretty serious FP, and you have to look at what guardrails you have to put into place when you're making decision-making. And so that's the kind of kind of work that we do on our side where, where we are very aggressive in terms of things that don't impact stuff, and we'll dig, we'll, we'll kind of dig long on, um, on pursuing, you know, research into something that we don't quite understand so that we can really nail down, is this something that, that we need to, to, to kind of get more aggressive on on the blocking side? But when we go to block based on that information, um, we're much more cognizant of not only the quality of inbounding information that's triggering the blocking. So we're like, you know, if the honeypots say it's bad, you know, which honeypot was it? Which piece of activity are we using to trigger it? You know, if we if we are downloading data from an IP address, I'm much more likely to like, OK, that's a good time for a honeypot to start blocking something as opposed to like roving scans kind of, you know, sweeping past the network. You don't know what's going on there. So, um, you know, when you when you have FPs and you have to decide, you know, how how am I going to treat it? It depends on what the impact of that FP is. And that that guides the level of guard railing that you have to have in place to protect yourself and your environment. So, Matt, um you know, you, you touched like on enterprise environments, right? So we all know, you know, the standard tool sets that we use and whatnot. Um, but I also work in the operation technology. So production mm -hmm. systems, process control, safety systems. What's the, do you see a difference in the interaction between, let's say, business network IT space and then uh, the operation technology OT space? Yeah, I mean, I, I do. Um, obviously, obviously, it's a more conservative environment in terms of, of, you know, at the process of getting visibility, just the way those networks came to be 
um, largely weren't built with that idea in place. A lot of these environments are, you know, a decade or more old in terms of like the engineering and architecture piece and everything else has been bolted onto it over that time. And 10 years ago, we just weren't thinking the same way about security, particularly in the OT space. Um, as we do now, um, the ni- there are some nice things about OT spaces, like speaking super broadly, because there are some OT spaces that are, are wildly behaving. But most OT environments that I've run into are fairly deterministic in that they have a set thing that they do. And as long as they're being kept, that OT network is is, quote unquote, pure in that it's only doing OT things and none of that IT stuff has leaked into it. Um, and none of the business demands on OT has kind of warped it too badly. It typically does the thing it does. And as you start to instrument it, things that are different or weird are more critical in an OT environment. Um, it, only because they tend to happen less often. Um, there's less randos downloading weird stuff off the internet on most OT environments. Um, so, you know, there's that kind of thing that kind of stays out. So in terms of hunting that environment, that's good. Um but you also have to have a fairly specialized knowledge of what you're looking at as well. So you might, if you want to know what's different about an OT environment, a lot of what's different might be buried inside of a protocol um, that's buried inside of a protocol that's inside of a TCP IP packet, right? So you have to have the institutional knowledge to know, okay, we're running Modbus over over IP here. So I got to go one layer down to this. And then this is what Modbus looks like. And then my tools have to be able to parse out Modbus. Then I have to know, okay, the Modbus protocol says this is this command. And our commands are normally these set of commands. And the probable you know pieces of those or the probable arguments to those commands are the following. If I want to look for something weird in that, then it has to be outside of this. And so that's a lot more kind of institutional knowledge that just isn't baked into most security people's brains. So unless you spent time in an OT environment, you're not going to know like, like that a lot of what makes all the things do the stuff is kind of buried inside of those packets. So basically a lot of time is spent baselining. Like it's almost like, like that's kind of the primary thing. Um, and I guess what I would say is that OT networks have a harder baseline in terms that it's firmer. And enterprises, to me, to, to use a word that I can't kind of figure out better, is like just like like are a fuzzier sort of environment where there's more kind of variable, weird sort of things happening in those environments than most OT environments, speaking really, again, very broadly. And since you uh, touch base um, on that, you know, very, very way to, to present, like a very nice way to present that, that encapsulated encapsulation, the encapsulation when you investigate something, you know, down to the machine protocol over IP, in this case, Modbus, you know, to say something. Um, what are some of the resources out there that you can use to kind of put your threat hunting toolkit together and, and, and you know, to do that these kind of things? Right. Um, like, so the first thing you, you kind of have to do is kind of have to, I think one of the questions when people are like, well, how do I start? Um, which is sort of the question that got asked here a few times. You have to have a foundation for what you're trying to check on. And so you have to have some kind of intelligence process. So that intelligence process could be, you know, I get up on Mondays and I I read the last week's security blogs from all the different vendors. Um, Or I have a MISP server that consumes certain things. Or I'm working my way through the attack framework. And this week I'm interested in this kind of methodology. So, 
I pull tools that that move laterally in this way and then I test them. Um, or it could be I have enough incidents inside of my environment that I'm taking intelligence straight out of the incidents that I have. And I'm trying to say, how can I how can I shorten the dwell time on these actors um, and hunt them specifically? Um, all of those are viable paths. So the first, the, you know, the two pieces you're going to have to have, again, are visibility and intelligence. Um, and so that's that's kind of what I would start from kind of curating that. And then um, then it's about figuring out maybe spending some time with your whatever tool set you've invested in in your environment, spending time like really digging into what exactly can this thing show me? Um, what can it be configured to do? Can I get a, uh, you know, a CMN to get it to do this thing I want to do? Um, does it export logs so that I can put it into an elastic server, which makes it a little easier for me to work off of and kind of going through their clunky interface? Um, all that kind of like kind of work to kind of go through and, and kind of get things set up uh, so that you can then just sit down and sort of zen out while you dig through data. So Matt, they're kind of like the ingredients, right? But let's say we're kind of like making a dessert, like tiramisu, yeah. right? Uh, and, you know, we want to raise a tack case. So we've got all these ingredients. Do we yep. need to like structure in a certain way? Like, so if, you know, if we're making a dessert, we have to bake it in a certain manner. And, and uh, you know, we have to give it the love that it needs so you can get a nice sweet dessert out of it and get the outcome. So how do we structure the data in a way that can be consumed? So let's say we raise a tack case, right? We normally go off and do a show tech, dump the logs out, you know, get ready for, you know, whatever information is, in a specific area, be it wireless, right, switching. Yep. But it, it's obviously very complex and threat hunting. So what do you expect um, and what would your colleagues expect from us if we were to go down this path? Well, I mean, if you were to describe it to me, I mean, it's just like, you know, lady fingers soaked in espresso with some like cream on it. But it's about, you know, those ingredients and those that setup. if you haven't presented it in the right way, you're not going to have that kind of culinary experience that you're looking for. And ultimately, what you're trying to do, you know, and, and I'll take tack out of it. I'll just talk about just in, in what, what we do is in terms of like just trying to convey intelligence from one point to the other. I have an understanding about something. Um, I want to convey it to you. Um, you kind of have to stack rank what you know, and then you have to justify any kind of logical leaps that you make. So you kind of lead with, with, with exactly what you want to have. Um, or exactly what you have. Like we had, you know, on the following day, following things occurred. These were, you know, viewed in logs. Um, logs IP triggered in MISP um, conveyed to this actor. We have moderate confidence given the time frame since the last time that actor used that IP that it is associated with them still. Um, the following steps are what we recommend you take based on this actor's past behavior. You kind of really have to like take the ingredients that you have and kind of think about, okay, what am I, what am I trying to convey? Am I trying to get someone to do something? So if you're, if you're, you know, if you're working with a, with a support system like TAC, you're trying to get them to give you more time, um, updates, you know, access to experts, you know, you know, whatever you're trying to get, make sure that you show that if we've done our work. Um, here's all the information um, take a few minutes before you before you make that communication and kind of organize it in a way. A lot of times, TAC has like a pretty standardized format for getting stuff, but you know it's the same thing if you if you're if you're taking stuff to the CISO for investment or, or to the board for reporting. Like you have to understand, I have this information. Um, 
I'm impressed with what I've done. So this happens to my analysts a lot. They're like, well, I did something really cool. And you're, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I agree. What you did was awesome. And I recognize that. And you recognize that. But you're going to have to talk to somebody or you're going to have to communicate to someone who's never going to speak with you directly. You're over and only in writing. You're like, how are you going to pass that information off? So this needs to be organized in a different way for you to have them experience the same level of excitement that you have. So it's very much like like report writing, technical writing, analytical writing is is a skill to be built. Um, it's hard. Um, I enjoy doing it. I know people, there are people on my team who have to do it who don't enjoy doing it. Um, but it is critical in terms of getting your objective um, complete because all you can do, you're all, usually people in our position are, we're good at like finding the thing, but then you need someone else to take action. Um, I need you to block this IP address um, admin. And they're like, why? And you're like, here's the justification. Um, and here's how we got here. And that's, you know, having that information in, a, in, a, in an easily consumable way, taking a few minutes to do that ahead of time is important. So how much harder has that become now? Everybody's working from home. You know what? So here's what's harder for us. And I don't know if this conveys to everybody. When you are collaborating on a document um, or when you're editing a document, that can be, depending on the personality of who wrote it, how attached they are to the subject, you know, how much of it is their baby, how much of, of it is beloved. And sometimes they write things that they don't care about. Like, you need to have some soft skills um, to convey the edits or the re-architecting of a document in a way that, that, that helps them, you know, still feel good about the outcome and not coming in and just being like, this was wrong. This is wrong. Your grammar is bad here. You had a logical leap here that you're not justifying. Why didn't you lead with this? This is the critical piece of information. All of those may be factually true, but in terms of our team working together, you know, you have to have the soft skills to want that, have that person want to continue to engage with you in future work. And that soft skill stuff is just harder in this format than it is when you can sit down and look someone in the eye and go, Hey, Look, I have some suggestions. I loved your work. Like, it's just easier to do that, in, at least for me, easier to do that soft skills, people maintenance thing when I can sit down with them and do it, um, as opposed to having a thing that as soon as we're done, we're no longer connected together and we're back apart, you know, with only WebEx connecting to us. Because I can't think of the number of times from as a manager where, um, you know, I've had a conversation and it was a rough conversation, um, you know, whether it was the topic or the person or whatever. And I went back, you know, to my desk and then like three minutes later, they showed up at my door and they're like, hey, I, you know, I just wanted to say this additional thing or I wanted to thank you or I wanted to say that I still think you're wrong, but we're going to do it this way. Like that, you know, that three minute later conversation, I think is super important. And it just doesn't happen when you live your life through video conferences. You have that that's chance to talk. And then after that, most people have moved on and you may send them something over some chat program. It's not the same. I, I get that. I mean, but I, after tough conversations, I generally take the phone and just give them a quick call uh, as a follow up. But what about technically? I mean, you're remote. You um, sometimes cannot see whatever you want to see. It's harder to just walk over to another desk to go uh, to find somebody who can see other things than you can. 
Is, is there any, uh, I mean, you guys must do a lot of stuff remotely. Is there any tooling or any recommendations that you have on collabor- collaborating technically on collecting stuff like this? So one of the things that we put into place since since uh, since the initial lockdown uh, was what Kendall on my team calls Tiger Teams. And so um, one of the things that I think we miss um, being in an office environment is that, you know, lunchtime, water cooler, coffee machine, you know, whatever. Just like you just happen to have a conversation with the right person. They're like, oh, I'm working on that, too. And, you know, we're doing this. And so you have to understand that our our team is like almost 400 people now. So um, uh, we're definitely kind of at the the inefficiencies of scale uh, side of that. You need a big water cooler. You need a big water cooler. <laughs> and so what Kendall on, 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 on my team built out was this Tiger Team process where we take, you know, line analysts or engineers or researchers or developers from all over Talos. Um, and there's, you know, in, in our case, we built three teams. And all they do is they meet once a week for 15 minutes. And they're like, oh, we're working on this. Um, or we saw this this week that was interesting. Or we're, we're still struggling with this problem. We don't know how to fix it. Um, and then they go their separate ways. And then what happens is they can meet up. They can kind of link up together and go, oh, I'm working on that. Or I solved this problem. Or I had an idea for you. And as dumb as it, like, like it is one of those things that is so simple like but that 15 minute um you know three three different groups meeting 15 minutes a week has produced like some of the blogs that we have published from our research only exist because of that tiger team um research where the right two people inside of a relatively large research organization uh got together and so we've 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 added some additional things and this isn't relevant to to most groups but where where we're publishing out sort of like, um, you know, weekly kind of this is what we're working on and these are the point of contact so that if people have an interest in it or some insight into it or they had an, an incident response that they worked on or they had malware that looks sort of like that, they know they, they can reach out from a technical person to a technical person, not having to run through me or my peers or any of that. Just kind of reach out to, to you know, Azim or whoever and be like, hey, I'm working on something that, that popped up similar. And that's super useful. Um, and you, so you just have to build additional architectures so that those kind of accidental connections are aggressively fostered. So that's a very interesting addition because a lot of people think threat hunting is all about the smart AI tools hunting through logs and machines. But it's probably what I hear from you is like 50% is getting people to talk. I don't have a lot of time for AI solutions. Um, uh, I'm not a fan uh, of, of, of the market rhetoric on AI. Uh, machine learning absolutely has a place in what we do. And, and, and you know, as you mature in that thread hunting process, I kind of mentioned briefly playbooks, there will be machine learning components um, that you build in um, that either drive investigation. Like a machine learning, machine learning is great at making you ask questions. Um, it'll present like, five strange things that happened in your environment this week and you'll dig through them and one of them might be important um but they're all strange like machines are great at finding outliers um they're awful at finding this outlier is this actor because you happen to reverse engineer a piece of malware six years ago and it looks just like this machines will never beat people and experience in terms of like really digging into environments 
or at least by the time they do, I will have retired. I'm 47. So like in 20 years, maybe. But looking at this, looking at the state of things now, networks are so environments are so chaotic. Business moves so fast. Things change so fast. Machines are great at saying this is weird. They're not good at taking into account this is accounting. This is, you know, you know, this is Stacy and she always clicks on email or, you know, just don't have the context consistently enough in those things. And, and you know, the AI bros, they'll come at me and that's fine. Um, I let them, I'm sure they'll prove me wrong with advanced dark AI blockchain or something. But, you know, until it actually has something that has market bite, I just don't see it. It's, it's like when a browser yells you that something is wrong, but it doesn't tell you what's wrong. And context is super. I mean, we struggle with that. Like, so, like, like we want to give our customers the context necessary to not just know something bad happened, but understand what their next step is, right? And that takes, like, not just this is bad, but this is bad and it's associated with this behavior. And we think it's pre ransomware. Um, and so here are the following things that you should do. Um, that kind of thing is not a machine activity currently. Um, that kind of thing is a human expert act. All right. Well, this has been another phenomenal episode of Cisco Champion Radio. If you want to learn more about today's topic, check out the links in the description below. And also, I have to remind you every episode, you can subscribe to Cisco Champion Radio on your favorite streaming platform and receive alerts on our latest releases. So wherever you're listening to us, make sure to click on that subscribe or follow button now. And since this is the last episode of the calendar year, I'd like to wish you all a safe and enjoyable holiday season. Looking forward to seeing you next year. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.